Welcome to The Link, the podcast that links the past to the present for those who went to high school in the 1980s. It is a perfect time to reflect and to take stock and to think about really fun parts of our past, but also some challenges. I get to see and hear all your amazing faces and a blast from the past, which is always super exciting, seeing who we were then, who we are now. We really didn't know what was going on in each other's lives very much. And so finding out the real scoop is incredibly rewarding. Yeah, we're back on the link. I feel like a 1980s era disc jockey. Or maybe VJ, perhaps. This is David Yaz. I'm the producer of the show at pod617.com. But more importantly, I introduce you to the cast and crew of The Link. Your hosts, Farah Pandeth, Diana Donovan, and Meredith Zenner. Yes. <laughs> Guys, it's been a week since we've last been together. How is everyone? Farah, how are you doing? You I'm do- doing great. Thank you so mm-hmm. much. I hope you are, too. Yeah, you know. So, <laughs> and Meredith. How are things on Planet Meredith? Things on Planet Meredith are wonderfully messy, but present. Okay. Yeah, we know you had a little technical <laughs> disaster just earlier, but... My keyboard batteries died. And yeah. I had no keyboard and couldn't... And you're able it. to fix it yourself. I the... ran to the neighborhood corner deli. Oh, oh nice. Fabulous <laughs> Park Slope. Thank you, like, Do you have batteries? <laughs> what size? Double <laughs> <From> A. <laughs> yes. See, what I normally do is... Give me four! I go to my battery drawer and look for batteries, (laughs) find none, go to look at three other drawers, then find none there, and then go to the store. That's how I handle it. I Um, always mix up the ones that are dead with the new ones. That's uh, also good. That's also fun. Yeah. Yeah, I always use rechargeable for the earth, and there, of course, we're all dead. So So heed your computer warning when it says your keyboard batteries are running low. Eh, Maybe listen. Maybe. Yeah, I guess that's what the note is there for. Diana, you once again have the pleasure of introducing our guests. Oh, and by the way, as the intro suggests, we should say at the top, it's always good to say what your podcast is about, but we are all members of the, including me, the class of 1986, Milton Academy, and we look back on the 80s fondly, sometimes fondly, sometimes not, and uh, we're just fast forwarding to present day and comparing it and all that. So, but Diana, we, and we have, we're welcoming in another member of our class to get caught up and take it away, Diana, please. Yay! So we're so very excited to welcome Wendy Millett today. She was a fellow hockey, ice hockey player with me in the, you know, inaugural girls ice hockey team when, but anyway, back in the day. But right now she is director of a sustainable ranch, Tomcat Ranch in Northern California, not too far from where I live. And she has spent decades working with horses and working with animals in different ways. She was with the Nature Conservancy, and she is going to talk to us about, you know, how I think a liberal arts degree led her into this. And I actually feel like what's great about hearing from Wendy is Meredith has a theory that people are basically who they are today because that's who they were then. And I remember, so I, I remember Wendy as like, a horsey teenager, as a, just a horse lover. And she's always been a horse lover. And I'd, I'm, I'm sure we'll just chat about that, but we just are excited to have her here and would love to uh, hear from you, Wendy, about what you've been up to. Welcome. So thank you for just the chance to visit, let alone talk about what I do, which 
I love what I do. And I, yeah, you're right. I've been doing kind of that dare to be true mantra really hit me. So I've been doing horses in nature since the beginning and I just kept doing it. So a few little exceptions to try out things in the world that quickly reminded me that I need to be doing my truth and that's always just been nature and animals and outdoors. And How did that even begin? Sort of where did that start? My mom says that it was horse was the first word I said, and it didn't sound like horse when I was that <laughs> little. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know how that ended up, but I think I just, I started out as a horse person. I mean, when we lived in um, New England and upstate New York, and I was always just outdoors and doing whether it was sports or horses playing in the field building forts I mean that's just where I was and so it's kind of funny Milton and, Har- and Harvard were kind of the exceptions because that was as urban <laughs> as I was for and and it was really just those were the places where I learned a lot about myself in other ways but as soon as mm-hmm. I could I just you know I left college and went right back went right to montana following horses because i was like well (laughs) if you love horses go to a place where there's in nature go where there's bigger nature and more horses and so and did you just show up on a ranch and say hey i just graduated from harvard you might have heard of it (laughs) but here i am to muck out the stalls (laughs) yeah as a literature major right really helpful so we had when i was in high school when i was at Milton, my dad insisted that at some point we had to go to a dude ranch in Wyoming because he used to do that as a boy. And your was, dad, we should point out, was was a teacher at Milton, right? My dad was a uh, was a Milton grad, but my Frank Millet was our my grandfather's cousin, so we had a common oh. great grandfather. Pardon me, and he was legendary. And I'm sorry for getting my Millets mixed up, but <laughs> the Millet name was big around Milton for sure. Yeah, no, I, in fact, my sister has two girls there now, and I think we're at like 22 relatives or something. Wow. Only? Um, really? That's <laughs> <laughs> impressive. Yeah, pretty fun. The first one, actually, I think Sarah's figured out was from 1885, and it was actually through the maternal my grandmother's line. So it's always been women, which is really cool, because I, I do a lot of women's leadership, and mm-hmm. passion for that is also part of, I guess, family lineage came through. So what yeah, kind of, What kind of women's leadership do you do? Well, through the equine guided, the horse programs, we do a lot of women's programs, but I also started a program called Women in Ranching with a a fellow ranching so my ranch is pretty unique it's owned by Tom Steyer and Cat Taylor so we have resources to do philanthropy and to do convenings we run a grass-fed beef business we do internships and apprenticeships we do a lot of gatherings for people to talk about in topics of regenerative agriculture and changing the food system and impact investing and policy around you know all of those topics And so one of the gatherings that we hosted one year was a group of women ranchers because we're about elevating voices and that's become a whole movement and has, you know, it's both great to support women who are doing ranching and doing the kind of work that we do on the ground because we are for sure a minority, but it's also that the people who are embracing a more sustainable food system and more progressive practices in agriculture as in many topics, they tend to be women. And then we get into a lot of economic rural development and building bridges and, you know, all of the many issues that are, you know, causing problems and are not causing uh, symptoms of problems in our world. And 
the women in these rural communities and, you know, Pescadero's in the Bay Area, but my little town here is small. It's, you know, probably 800 people and, you know, we're 45 minutes from Silicon Valley, but I, I have people of all voting um, descriptions that, who work for me here on the ranch and we figure out how to get along because we have, you know, the necessity of raising livestock and, you know, managing a couple thousand acres and, you know, well, we so do... Wendy- can I just stop you for a second? Because that's so important what you've just said, that you figured out how to do that. And in such a toxic political environment in our country, you had to do this and you had a goal on why you had to do it. Would you share with us some of the tactics that you have put in place? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I'll give you a visual because I'm a literature major storyteller and that part of like, if you can imagine day one arriving here and we have scientists here and we have ranchers here and we have food, nutrition, social change people here. So those staff meetings were pretty rough when I first arrived here. And so thank goodness that I had this background in equine education, which is really about you know, listening skills and reading body language and, you know, drawing people out and really getting to the heart of issues and building bridges. So we did a lot of that kind of work as staff meetings, you know, it's what you need to do. And it's kind of that, you know, example in what we're hearing about in our world where people just, they can't, we can't hear each other across our differences, but looking for that common ground was really what I got to do those staff meetings is like, let's talk about the 80% we do agree about. And the other 20%, you know, we had a policy that was leave it at the gate. If you can't be nice to each other, you leave it at the gate. And so, I mean, I had to be that firm at that point. I've been here eight plus years now. So we've got a really positive workforce now. And we also know what topics we don't talk about because people are different. So But listening to me is a huge part of it and really listening with intention. And the horses teach us that because the horses are incredibly good listeners. And I won't, I can talk about equine education, guided education forever. But, you know, the gist of it is they're just so good at reading our body language that if you tip your ear a little bit, that might mean that you're feeling slightly grumpy or hostile. And I mean, I read those things and I try to get keep ahead of them, you know, in facilitating a group because, you know, you just, once things escalate, people get into an emotional space where they don't really collaborate well. So. How many of us on the podcast today so far are grumpy or irritated or anything? Have you noticed yet? Because maybe don't tell us. I don't know. <laughs> so Wendy, you know, there are, there are parts of our government that, that spend a lot of time learning behavior so that we can understand foreign adversaries and domestic adversaries. But it's fascinating for you to put it in that perspective, because I think what I've been hearing so much is that we're too broken to come back together. And it is too hard, whatever the heck that means. It's too hard. I hear that over and over again. So the lessons, the tactics that you're talking about are straightforward, they're common sense, and every human can do that. You know, we can learn as adults how to behave in that manner. So I really appreciate you sharing that with us. Well, now I understand why Farah wants to go out to Tomcat Ranch. (laughs) No, the listeners don't know that I told Wendy that this is the moment I'm going to be her like apprentice or something. I need to learn from her. Well, it's amazing. And I was going to ask Wendy, do you have any sort of formal therapeutic background or is everything what you've learned from like all of the 
things that inform the equine therapy? Is that literally just from being with the horses and observing and it's firsthand? What to say? Um, it's firsthand in terms of understanding the body language. You know, there's kind of two key pieces of the equine work is one is being able to read the horses really well because the horses I'm kind of a translator you know the horse will respond to the human and then I get to notice that and then say to you Diana hey you know the horse just did this what is that Mm -hmm. and so then the second part of it is therapy or coaching one business partner is a therapist so I've learned a ton from Mm -hmm. her one is a engineer and he does a lot of more of our left brain business but so I've learned a fair amount about therapy stuff along the way. I also went to a program called the School for Enlightenment and Healing, which sounds very California. And it's very is, California. But the reason that I chose that program, which now is called Surya, which means light in Sanskrit. And the reason I chose that program, I lived in LA at the time and I had hurt my back and poor hockey and sports and horses and all those things. But, and I lucked out and the, the massage therapist I went to said, I think you're going to really like this program. You should check it out. And we learned energy medicine and we learned to read energy fields. And, and one of the teachers was also a therapist and was a PhD in, or PhD master's in um, physics and studied in India for 20 years. So like a lot of different disciplines that came in around just different ways of looking at the world and unified field and physics, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of stuff. So th- that's a whole nother passion of mine and I just read a ton and done a lot of workshops on the side and I don't have like a formal I finished that program it was a three-year program it wasn't about horses but then it just instantly Mm -hmm. kind of fit all together to me so is the energy work like Reiki or is it what is it what is it exactly yeah I mean Reiki is one of them yeah there's there's a zillion of them out there and energy is universal so it call it what you want depending on who the practitioner is and what they want to call it so yeah but I just again I can see changes of things and that's how the horses see things too right I mean it is body language but it's like a it's a a sense of things you know an intuition about things and So when you there, what, oh, sorry, yeah, Dana, go ahead, please. No, I was just curious if there was any sort of, are, is Tomcat Ranch affiliated in any way with the equine therapy or are they just completely different parts of your yeah. life that you happen to run? It's <laughs> <laughs> a good question. And we call it equine coaching because I'm not a therapist, even though Amy is, but the therapists are very particular. So I'll just mm-hmm. clarify and for good reason, because they're trained in it in a different skill set. But what happened is when I started, <laughs> when I interviewed here, Tomcat, I was describing to my interview committee, all the things that I would could bring to the ranch and one of the things is I've worked with horses for a long time and I have this business called Gallup Ventures and Kat who is always excited and interested in everything our owner but who was also on my interview team said well could you do it here and I said sure if you want to hire me I'll do it here (laughs) Um, so it is one of the things we have a program here called a day at the ranch where we bring people to learn about you know, ranching and where your food system comes from and how our land management goes. But it often includes working with the horses if people want to do that. And so we'll do, you know, groups, you know, a couple day retreats if people want to come here and (coughs) work on that. You know, it has to be around the food system and the agricultural topics and land management topics we work on also, but it's a piece of what Mm -hmm. we get to offer. That's how it all fits together. And it's a typical day be for you. 
Oh, well, today the cows got moved through the main part of the ranch, so that was fun. We're moving them up to a lease. We've got about 115 head, and so that's just a highlight of a day. If I had a video for you, you would have loved it. You know, they're just, they come off of the hills, and this lower ranch here where the main headquarters are is a lot of barns and buildings and and some staff housing and all that and they just kind of run the road right down through the middle of the ranch and then they go to the corrals and then they get loaded up onto trailers and they'll move off to one of our lease properties so and what sorry for the stupid question what are the what happens to the cows ultimately <laughs> oh the cows are part of our they're for our grass-fed beef business it's okay. called left coast grass-fed okay so, and and the horses i take it are you breed the horses for people buy your horses there for no we don't have a breeding program here they're for two things one is to move livestock cattle around okay. so kind of didn't cattle. you see city slickers dave yeah so you employ the cowboys or i don't know if you call them ranchers or you call them but no i get it you need the horses to get those little doggies getting along right you know yeah, exactly. I mean, some days we just use the ATVs because modern cow, cow girls and cowboys, you know, oftentimes we're moving them on ATVs and sometimes we're just moving them on foot. But And then one of the things that the apprentices and the interns will learn is how to ride horses and move cows with horses. And it's not just sort of city slicker moving them, but much like the Gallup Ventures work is learning to read the livestock and their body language. We practice something called low stress stockmanship. So everything we do is very progressive and kind of animal friendly and nature friendly and, you know, changing the, trying to change the paradigm of agriculture and kind of upgrade the software, so to speak. So the interns apprentices, they'll they'll learn how to ride and they'll learn how to ground school with the animal, with on horses. And so, yeah. Wendy, one of the things I was just struck by is how early in the sort of sustainability environment movement, if we want to call it that, you got on board way early compared to how our generation even thought about this stuff. And I know that you've seen a lot change in the years that you've been doing this, but are you hopeful? I mean, are you hopeful about what's happening to our world around environment and sustainability? Yeah, it's, you're so right. You know, I just, I had to pull up a reference the other day. I was on the President's Council for Sustainable Development, which was President Clinton's effort in 92, 93, something like that. And, you know, worked on a book called Land Use in America when I lived in DC back in the early 90s. So it has been a long time. And, you know, then we called it sustainable. And what we, we started out here at the ranch calling it sustainable, actually. But when we looked at the history of what the land use practices had been here on the ranch, which included like, you could pay to dump your car in the creek. And (laughs) like, I don't know what we're sustaining. How far do we have to go back? You know, and even conventional agriculture practices, unfortunately, are based on a very extractive mindset and what the regenerative and so why we chose to use the term regenerative is it sort of has that intention of restoring and you know lands that were farmed you know even like the hills that i'm looking at now lands that were farmed for 50 years they don't have we we, we're into soil health so if you want to nerd out with me on like a microbiome of the soil like we could go on and on but more biodiversity than all the humans on the planet i mean this is cool stuff we should nerd out on soil health although i don't think anyone else on the call really knows about soil health <laughs> but it's part of the whole i mean the consciousness change i mean you cannot expect yeah. people to change behavior if they don't understand why yeah. they're changing behavior and i think that's one of their things going back to 
you know, everything that we learned at Milton, you know, how we learn history, how we understand things. It can't just be a moment that you're learning and it has no value. That has no value. It has to be connected to something else. So see, I can be your apprentice. This is exactly <laughs> why I'm pitching to you. <laughs> Are you taking applications? I'm telling you seriously, I have no background in this, but I can learn. I'd be very happy. <laughs> study. You are signed up. <laughs> Thank you. See, we'll you guys have witnesses now. Yeah, I the horse thing I can do, actually, shockingly, but not well. But I'm so impressed with what your, <clears throat> the entire, your own consciousness, I guess that's the only way I can say it, and what you did and why you did it. Do you see it? Do you see a shift in the staff that you have working with you now? Are they our generation? Are they younger? What are, who makes up your staff? Yeah, well, and I'll just finish up to answer your question before, too, because I think it's important to say I do feel hopeful because there are so many people interested in soil health. And there's so many people, including now a lot of big companies getting into Regenerative Ag and more the, you know, whatever you call it, we happen to call it Regenerative, but some people call it Climate Smart Ag, which is critically important. And Biden and our California governor have an executive order now about climate and you know, regenerative ag and soil health are mentioned in both of those efforts. So that is all a key part of the work that we do. And we do a lot of policy work also here. So, but then getting to your point about sort of what the future is, it gives me hope because the young people who the apprentices and interns tend to be, you know, they're age 20s and they are so mission driven. They are so excited about, you know, being on the earth working with you know I, th- I think something tangible you know in a world where you feel like you don't know what you can do climate change feels like you know all the problems in the world seem so overwhelming but you come down to a ranch and it's part of why I always wanted to be back in a ranch setting is like you know some days you have to make a decision about who lives and dies and you know there's it's pretty gritty and not just the dirt concept, but just like life is real here, you know? And so that piece, I think really appeals in the chance that they can grow their own food, care for those animals. I have Asian American apprentice from Seattle and she just, that is her passion. Like I want to raise my own food. I want to know where it comes from. I want to care for it from day one to the last. And, um, Oh, that gives me so much hope. I mean, I get the shivers just even thinking about it. And, you know, so yeah, that really gives me hope. And that's answers your question about who's here. So you'll fit right in. I I have one (laughs) other nerdy question for you, if you don't mind Um, me asking. So you're doing policy work. You said, are there countries that are just, I mean, who are the leaders in this globally? I mean, Australia and New Zealand are really great on the <clears throat> regenerative, but uh, honestly, I'd say everywhere around the world, and this was all new to me because, you know, I was in conservation strictly. I mean, we still do conservation and ranching is what I like to say, where they merge. But where I was at the Nature Conservancy and Conservation Fund, I didn't know, I didn't know this space. And what I found is, and thanks to our great education, I read a ton and you can, you know, follow these people all over the world, thanks to social media. And I've gotten to visit a lot of them at this point now is there's just pockets of innovators. And this is true in any, you know, space technology, you know, healthcare, like it, there's just, there's innovators, there's thought leaders, there's just these and, and they're all over the world. So that's the interesting thing. I mean, because it is climate specific, you know, where we are in the Mediterranean climate, which 
mirrors, you know, some of what Australia has, then we get a lot of good lessons from there because trying to apply what works in Iowa on uh, (laughs) agriculture, you know, we we don't get quite the same (laughs) result. Hi, this is David Yaz, producer of The Link Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, we hope you consider supporting us with a contribution through Patreon. The Link is a labor of love for us, but there are production costs attached to creating a quality show. And you can help us by visiting patreon.com slash the link podcast. We have some cool ways of thanking you for your support, including t-shirts, mugs, and shout outs on the show. You can do us a solid for as little as $5 a month, and we will continue to bring you great conversations that foster the bonds of our high school class and beyond. Once again, please visit patreon.com slash the link podcast. Now back to the show. All right. The sound of the phony eurythmics leads me to believe it is time for the Do You Remember portion of the podcast where I will play a few news clips to bring us back to those days from, I don't know, roughly 1982 to 1986 or so. And where shall we begin? Okay, we'll begin with a rather polarizing political figure who... Kind of dominated the 80s. All right, let's take a listen to uh, this moment from a debate in 1984. You already are the oldest president in history, and some of your staff say you were tired after your most recent encounter with Mr. Uh, Mondale. I recall yet that President Kennedy had to go for days on end with very little sleep during the Cuba Missile Crisis. Is there any doubt in your mind that you would be able to function in such circumstances? Not at all. Mr. Truitt, and I want you to know that also I will not make age an issue of this campaign. I am not going to exploit for political purposes my opponent's youth and inexperience. So uh, pretty good line by Ronnie there. Of course, Ronald Reagan, even Mondale, his opponent, was laughing. But the reason I played this clip is because he kind of dominated the world, the political scene while we were in high school. And... I think was looking back on it was pretty polarizing at a place like Milton, which had a lot of, now you guys correct me if I'm wrong, a lot of liberal thinkers, but also a lot of old school thinkers as well, like among the community of the school and the student body. What do you guys remember? Who would like to begin? It would be too easy to start with Farah. But Mar- that's where you should start. That's where you should start. <laughs> She's already pleading the fifth. Mer- the fish in the barrel. Meredith, you kick us off. What do you remember about politics during high school? I don't remember anything about politics. You don't? <laughs> oh, I'll start that. Oh. Thank you. Okay, let, Diana, you go ahead. Well, it's funny. So I moved to Milton. We we came from New York City. And what I remember, and we moved in 1980, it was after the Ford-Carter campaign, pre- or, you know, yeah. presidency. So New York was incredibly political, incredibly politically aware. And I remember even in sixth grade, you know, there were lots of people engaged in talking about it. And I felt my experience at Milton, particularly in the earlier years, was that it was a place where like you didn't talk about politics because it wasn't polite. It would be like talking about cancer or, Mm. you know, it was just like, it was too too much of a hot button issue. So honestly, I think my experience until there were a couple of people I knew, you know, maybe towards senior year, I remember, was it Mr. Keys who taught politi- uh, poli sci or 
there, there was like a group, there was a group of politically active people. And it was like, I felt like they were allowed to talk about politics and they knew much more about politics, but like the rest of us just had to, you know, walk around and not fight with each other. <laughs> That's I, how yeah. I remember it. I remember it would come up in, in, we had separate morning assemblies, the boys and the girls, but there would be some like brief moments of debate in the, I remember it was a couple of faculty members, including Red Smith. I, I forget what his actual first name was, but you David. Remember, David Smith, who I, who I had for English. You guys probably had him for something. And he had a particular way of talking sort of like this. And I remember we had, we actually had, I guess it was a quasi debate, a representative from the Reagan campaign was on hand. And I remember Mr. Smith saying to him, how can we possibly trust a guy who casually mentioned that he's about to start the bombings against Russia in five minutes, which was like one of Reagan's little gaffes. He was trying to make a joke anyway. But and then there, but I remember this more that it was almost like the, the faculty seemed more liberal minded. But a lot of the students would stand up and give little almost campaign ads during the assembly for Reagan. So I don't know. Farah, what do you remember? Well, so it's weird because I had a very similar experience to Diana. I mean, it wasn't polite to talk about politics. And mm. even though you might have been interested in what was happening, you don't talk about that kind of stuff because you don't know what might be, you know, what somebody's background is. You don't know where their family comes from. So we were, I think we were really trained not to talk about that kind of stuff. And Diana's 100% right. There was a special group of people, I think junior year and senior year, that took a, an elective class and they were sort of the scholars on all of this stuff, which is a shame, frankly, because I think we could have benefited from some diverse opinions around politics, both conservative and, and liberal politics. But that's not the era that we were in. Yeah, I mean, when I said Reagan dominated the era, it, it was it was just... It wasn't like, well, I mean, we've just gotten done with maybe the most polarizing president of our lifetime. Maybe that's Captain Obvious here. And Reagan was controversial, but nowhere near as polarizing as Trump. In fact, it kind of became vogue in certain circles to just kind of just to like Reagan. And then others were so, you know, that it was not without controversy among, you know, he ignored the, the AIDS epidemic reputedly. Anyway, I'm just, uh, those are random thoughts. And when, astrology gu guided our nation for a while. Yeah. No, but, don't, but don't, but don't, <laughs> but let me just remind you guys that in fact, there was a group of students from Milton that went to go hear Nancy Reagan speak about their just say no program drugs. on yep. drugs. So we were, I mean, the school was mm. doing stuff to sort of maybe, maybe, connect us to what was happening more more generally but but I think in America you know the idea of talking about politics in the 1980s when you were a kid well yeah it wasn't the 60s right it just wasn't and a lot of people just sort of shrugged at, at politics I think Wendy what do you remember I, I, same as these guys for sure I'd say the speech team was an area where occasionally I would feel like, you know, talking to Charles Cheever, for example, there was something that was in the genre that one might call small P politics, or we had ethics class with Mr. Cleveland. I feel like we touched on things that might have gone into those topic areas at some points, but nothing explicitly, you know, what we would call politics capital P at all. So uh, I, I feel the same way with as you guys. And there's something I was super curious about after Milton and getting to understand more. It's really why I moved to DC for a while. It's just, how does it all work here? 
I didn't do the government. Did you figure that out, Wendy? Because I'd love to talk to you. That would be (laughs) real great. Well, it goes back to what you were saying earlier, Wendy, about how working with horses Mm -hmm. involves listening and talking about politics, politics obviously involves listening. And we were kind of steered away from that. It was like, Mm -hmm. it it wasn't thought of as a skill to cultivate. And so some of us were sort of ended up being bad at it and you had to go out and yeah. seek ways to learn how to be a listener but which the other Tara, you obviously did and wendy you well did. no but there's something interesting that wendy said about sort of speech team and you know obviously meredith wendy my something we all experienced that but one of the things that we were taught at milton was sort of a, a dynamic where it's win and lose right so if you're listening to figure out what the weaknesses are of somebody's mm-hmm. argument and extent you're hearing what the adversary is saying to you about your policy on drugs, let's suppose, so that you can make the counter argument. That's a very different kind of listening skill. And it's a very different kind of uh, understanding of how you can add value. But I think that this idea, and I don't, I actually feel very strongly that what Wendy was saying about sort of the, it's the ecosystem of listening, that you don't have to feel rage when somebody says something that you don't like, you have to understand where they're coming from, you may not agree with what they're saying, but understand the cues, understand the context, and learn how to live within it and to be to not necessarily agree, but to learn how to be respectful. And so we we did, we did not in, in classes, we were respectful to each other, because we had to be, but they weren't necessarily about listening skills or mm-hmm. political arguments. All right, next item, we m- move to the world of music, and who, re- who remembers this? Yeah, this one. <laughs> oh, cool. There comes a time when we heed a certain call, when the world must come together as one. There are people I forgot Paul Simon was in there. All right, well, I just wanted you to have a taste of it. I can kind of pull it down here. This is, of it's course, a great song. It's, it's, it's a great it song. is, of course, what a great video. Too, it really is. And oh yeah, you're getting a who's who of 80s music here, right? Meredith, you you were jamming a little to that. Oh, I was jamming a little. I also have a completely, well, related, but unrelated. Oh. Ms. Michael. My mother. Yes. <laughs> my mother came out of the bath and she goes, oh, my goodness. I just thought of the most amazing song it goes like this i'll be your man you'll be my woman together i was like mom that's weird (laughs) she thought she had invented it anew she's like it just came so naturally to me (laughs) here's the melody mom have you listened to the radio Well, but this was the advent of this era, and this was not the first. The 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 British band known as Band Aid put together. Bob Geldof. What's that? Bob Geldof. Yeah, Bob Geldof from the Boomtown Rats and others put together Band Aid and in support of that was for was this all for starving children in Africa or was yes. for Band-Aid something yeah. else? I guess and it we was. did so much we've done so well since then we really have it's really revolutionized the way we've thought about poverty are you being sarcastic 
Yeah. Yes. Oh, you are. Okay. All right. Well, not everybody knows that. So, so you're, oh, okay. you're the you're the expert. The continent of Africa is in the years since Milton has been neglected by policymakers around the world. Let's just make that statement. It's tragic, actually. On one hand, there was so much hope with this video, and the ra- they did raise money for it. What I think is interesting is that Bruce, you know, the boss, mm. was central in that video, and. All these years later, 35 years later or so, mm. he's now making commercials for the Super Bowl to remind us that we're all Americans. I mean, it yeah. is remarkable. Well, he probably did the inauguration gig for free, though, right? <laughs> that might have been for the good of the country. But I'm sure he took a paycheck from Jeep, yeah, which was very strange. So what else? Diana, do you remember this business? Yeah, I remember being, I remember this song reminds me of a time when I felt sort of hopeful. Like, it's so incredible that all of these different musicians who have careers to promote, and they're all really different, and they're not friends, and they don't like each other. And they're coming together in this sort of glee clubby way, which is like this very, you know. I mean, Dylan. Yeah, there's Dylan. Yeah. I just thought, like, I thought it was incredible and amazing. And of course, I bought the little 45 or whatever. And, yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah. Both, I, both of my I, brothers, both of my brothers <laughs> bought their own copy of the record because they said it was for charity. So they, you know, they each wanted so to have... get the sweatshirt. <laughs> that's why. Yes. Oh, okay. And you can get the sweatshirt too. Yes. Um, to be Cindy Lauper. Wow, wow, wow. <laughs> You you do have a little Cindy Lauper in you, Meredith, but, and I mean that in a nice way. And what the hell was Dan Aykroyd doing there in the back? Wendy, any uh, We Are The World memories from you before we move on? No, but just watching it right now, it's just any time you could get a group of people together in common cause, I just get the chills. It's possible. You know, it's just so beautiful to see. So I'm glad we're watching it. Thank you. Yeah, cultural, so you know, people. Of- yeah. For sure. For sure. And, you know. Not just white people. That's mm-hmm. uh, I'd say it's it's very diverse, but the I, I we always think of our youth as there's Springsteen just to annoy you, uh, Farah. He's appearing in the video now. I, I love him. I think he's great. No, he, most of what he did does does is is quite great. But it was we always like to say it was simpler times. But I think even looking back on this, we could probably all between us name everybody in the video. And if the stars of today were on there. I don't think I could name half of them, but, it, well, but wouldn't they all be like seventeen? Well, well, maybe. Although, although some of the top recordings, st- the top, uh, you know, when we used to when they used to go on the road and actually perform concerts before this year, a lot of them are people like Bruce Springsteen and Lionel Richie, and a lot of these guys are actually still doing it. But mm-hmm. I guess what I'm referring to is fame has become different, and the music industry has become much different, and so you probably have you know, like TikTok stars in there that I've absolutely never heard of before, you know, and then, you know, mixed with hip hop. And, and There's a lot of lot of music for old people out there touring, or at least there was <laughs> yeah. last year. We went to see Van Morrison. We saw Lyle Lovett. We've seen. <laughs> see, there you go. There you go. I like comeback tours too. All right, we'll do one more. And I hate to end on a down note, but I think you'll know why I bring this up. This is a, a celebrity who passed in the 80s. And why it was significant, you'll find out right now. Good evening, I'm Roger Grimsby. Here now the news. Actor Rock Hudson dead. His year-long battle with AIDS at an end. He was 59. Hudson died quietly in his sleep this morning at his home in Beverly Hills. He was found dead by members of his household staff. It was just this past July that the word came out that he had something drastically wrong with him. He appeared gaunt and drawn when he made an appearance with Doris Day to promote a television program. It was soon after that that the truth did emerge. Rock Hudson was suffering from AIDS. 
He went to Paris for treatment, was too ill to accept it. Rock Hudson's movie career spanned more than 30 years. Now, is it me, or was there almost a little bit of malice in that news, in the news reporter's voice? Oh, yeah, there's voice. total malice. Yeah. There was shame. Yeah. There was shaming him. So, yeah, Rock Hudson, one of the first, you know, prominent celebrities to, to die of AIDS, prominent people to die of AIDS. And that this was smack dab in the middle of our high school experience, and it was... It contributed to the fact that it was kind of a scary time, right? What do you guys remember? I totally remember, like, sex equals death. Yeah. I totally remember the AIDS thing. And my dad is and was an infectious disease doctor. And one of his good friends was one of the first people to die of AIDS. And it's, I mean, as I got older, I mean, especially college and after college, I lost a bunch of friends from it. And I just, I, I remember... Yeah, it's just awful. What? How about, let's see, Diana, would you like to go next? Sure. I mean, what I remember, you know, I, I moved to San Francisco in 1990. So what I know about AIDS has far more to do with what the 90s were like living here. And it was a very, it was really in your face. And there were a lot of people I knew who worked in healthcare. And, you know, I had a really good friend who was part of the people who created the AIDS quilt. So my experience with AIDS was completely different here than it was back then. Cause at Milton, I don't remember, it was very shameful. It wasn't really talked about and it was sort of the gay disease Yeah, and, oh, yeah. and nobody wanted to touch those people and nobody wanted to treat them. And it was very, it was, I just remember it was a completely taboo topic and I, it was sort of like sexy cools death, but it was like, it was, I think we weren't, we didn't talk about it in a compassionate way. And I didn't like see compassion. Them. I didn't see compassion for AIDS until I moved to San Francisco. And it was a completely different situation here. It was, there was enormous support from the community and it was, yeah, it was very different. Well, but, do, you, do you remember what the name of the disease was prior to them renaming it AIDS? Anyone? It was GRID and it was, Gay related infectious disease. I think that's I think oh, that's what wow. it was. And oh, I forgot about that. Yeah. And so finally some scientists, you know, proposed that, you know, this is really unfair and inaccurate, but but you guys are right. I mean, it was seen as a gay plague. I mean, it was openly called that. You know, as I mentioned before, a lot of people thought Reagan really could have done a lot to stem the tide of AIDS and he just kind of ignored it as this kind of fringe thing. And we've talked about it on prior podcasts, but it, it just wasn't, people were not out as gay people in our high school. And we now know that there are several wonderful and brilliant people who happen to be gay, who we went to high school with. But we, you know, it was not a culture you could be open about that. And maybe this is part of that whole, you know, phenomenon. I don't know. Farah, what about you? What do you remember? Well, I think there are a couple of things. One is... Let's just, in terms of conversation, yes, there was taboo, but there were words that we were not speaking in public. You couldn't yeah. say the word condom in public. You couldn't, when people talked about how to prevent the disease, try doing that without using the word condom and skirting around what safe sex meant. And I mean, all of that stuff was, it was beginning while we were in high school to, to be able to talk about that. By the time we got to college, you know, college campuses were trying to figure it out and make it okay. And I mean, it was just all a big mess. But more than that, I just think when you have a chance to look back at lessons learned from that experience for our generation, it is the ability to find the right lexicon, to find the compassion and find the empathy to talk about things in a way that are not 
politicized and make sense. And I think that those are the biggest lessons I learned from that experience. I mean, I, I completely agree with Diane. I mean, we were not, and Meredith, I mean, it, there was a very, Con, con, there's a connect of, you know, it is a, a death sentence if you get this disease that was very much in your mind. But there was also an overarching political aspect to this, which is the political and religious aspects to it, I should say, that really manifested itself in a very bad way in the United States. And so in the decades after that, I mean, certainly we have classmates who have been working on this issue, yeah. frankly, of, of how to talk about things, how to build inclusive societies around homosexuality and all of the things that come with all of that from the from term, terminology from the 1980s. But that there's a much bigger thing to unpack here. By the way, quick TV note. Has anyone seen the documentary? It's called Lady and the Dale. It, it recently came out. I can't remember if it was Amazon Prime or Netflix, but it's the story of, and I don't, I shouldn't screw up the details, but it's one of the first sort of trans people to be a kind of titan of industry was a woman who spent most of her adult life as a man and then at one point became a woman who was championing this new automobile. This took a lot longer than I thought it was going to to describe. <laughs> you can tell, Dave, clean this up later. But it's fascinating because she gets excoriated for being a fraud. The This... All right. So now I've pulled it up. Okay. Elizabeth Carmichael is the name of the woman. She was first known as a con artist, as a man, and then a trans woman. She championed this new automobile called the Dale, which was going to be a three-wheeled automobile. So you picture two wheels in front, one in the rear, a much lighter automobile during a period where the, the fuel crisis was at its crest. And she was going to be a hero, but then some funny things with the money. But all through it, there is this very pal- palatable forces against her anti-trans and she just got clearly her whole you should watch this documentary because i'm not doing it justice anyway (laughs) but it just reminded me like you know completely different time completely different way of looking at completely different time i mean i do you remember sex class we had was it just one in the health thing yeah we had i remember we had health and i remember didn't we have health and and i just remember like was there and he was he was being like everybody was just laughing. Everyone, and yeah. We saw, wasn't it? How to put a condom on like a banana? Yeah, my particular, I remember the thing which was how to reuse a condom, which was it was what? sort of like, is that a good idea? <laughs> and and to this day, I actually still sort of remember. It, it involves cornstarch, just for those of you what? who are listening. That's a thing. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. Okay, may I make a really... may I make a recommendation from the time that Dave suggested we watch the the Netflix thing yeah. to yeah. now this entire thing get cut out just what? just really because wendy because we we, we have to include wendy in the conversation she is our guest oh, we can get her thoughts on this why don't we why don't we actually um we're, in, we're entertaining her watch look at her face yeah. we need Sorry. to engage and include why don't we actually move to the final part because we're up against the clock anyways okay. good so good good note there farah that's yeah, fine. I try. We'll, I do we'll, try. We'll Always encouraged. All right. All right. We're moving on with some more soulless 80s music. No, I'm just kidding. It brings back all kinds of memories. So uh, we're going to conclude the program by asking the question of the week, and it's a simple one. Maybe we'll go around the horn here and just make an observation about how this generation now, the kids that are in high school now or at home, you know, 
participating in high school, how they might differ from our generation as we were growing up. So, Wendy, I don't mean to pick on you. You are a guest, but you're unprepared for this, so we're all going to cut you some slack. But if you had to name a couple things, how would you guess that this generation differs from ours? No, I feel pretty prepared for it. Oh, good. I I can't imagine going through high school thinking about you know, the global issues that they are aware of and the onslaught of media and, you know, from climate change to the pandemic now to, you know, the Texas to this, these next last couple of days, you know, there's real pounding events, fires. If you've been in California, like we didn't live, live through the catastrophes that this generation is living through. So humbled by what their experience might even look like. I can't even imagine. Hmm. You know, that to have your worldview shaped by these massive things that are seemingly out of your control. Yeah. And where does that move you to? And, you know, and this increasing sense of, the, you know, the BIPOC stuff that's or Jedi issues that have come up this year, just like so much that maybe it feels a little bit more like a civil rights era and in, in that, you know, to them relating to that more than what we knew is exactly just our answers to the questions. It was pretty, pretty flat for us. So those are some of the things I Good think thoughts. about for them. Meredith, you want to go next? That was great. Yeah. I, I mean, first of all, we, I, I remember if somebody took a picture of somebody wearing shorts and, you know, a week later had it develop, people would be like, <laughs> I can't believe it. Or, <clears throat> you know, duh. And now with social media and, and so many just so much information on so many levels and all the pressure. And, you know, I felt I had enough pressure as a young girl, just watching MTV, like I'm supposed to look like that. And, you know, just all of those things. And again, the kids today, just what Wendy was saying, like so many epic tragedies and wars or separations and passions. But I also feel that kids are equally more encouraged or I hope more encouraged just back to what we may have been talking about Mm. with gender you know I know so many kids now that are playing with gender and you know a lot of girls have short hair and a lot of guys have longer you know in different ways and and their sexuality and more experimentation I, I I wonder how I would have been able to deal with today as a young kid not being able to leave my house and being with my parents 24 7 how i would deal with that i wonder if there's a lot of bonding going through i don't know but i do know that one team has said like wow if i live till 30 that'll be a true accomplishment what yeah that's grim that's grim but but you're right i mean i tell my son this whole year i've been telling him just remember that you're going to tell your grandchildren about this year because I will too, because, you know, I'm 50 plus. I've never seen a year like this before. Like, this really is unprecedented, you know. Diana, your thoughts? Yeah, so I am coming from the perspective as a parent too. I have a 16-year-old daughter, and I feel like in many ways, you know, kids are the same, but I think the world that they're kind of being educated into if that's a thing. I feel like I wrote down a couple of notes. One of one, the, the, the words that characterize what we grew up with, I put down false optimism. And then for hers, I wrote grim reality mm-hmm. because I feel like we, we were sort of taught like, particularly like the girls in our class had no idea that we were walking into an incredibly sexist 
society, or at least I had no idea. I was like, I can do whatever I want. I can be CEO. I'm incredibly capable and blah, blah, blah. We had this false optimism. And that just, you know, I, my first job was a cocktail waitress where literally I had a manual where it was like, if, if attractive women try to leave, you actually have to bring them free drinks. You also seat them by the window, FYI. So (laughs) good to know. That's a whole other thing. (laughs) So I think that there's a very different way that they're being taught about the world. And I'm glad that they're being taught more of the real things. But I think, unfortunately, what I think is happening is they're, they still are growing up as bystanders. They're not, with the exception of some people who are, you know, Greta Thunberg or people you read about, a lot of teenagers today are just, they're just watching. And that's because they're on their phones all the time. And they're just, they're just not involved. And to me, that is terrifying, you know, that, that they're, oh yeah, whatever. My, my daughter's been at home for a year and she's, yeah, it's, she's gotten used to it. She's like, it's normal. And, you know, we had masks anyway, because of all the fires we had, you know, we had no power because anyway, there's, I'll let somebody else talk. Okay. <laughs> no, all good. All good. Far, you want to pick it up? Yeah, so I want to go in the completely different direction. And my perspective is simply from the luxury of being able to talk to young kids for the last decade all around the world in nearly 100 countries. And so my perspective, let's take COVID out of it for a moment. This is a generation that is not waiting. This is a generation that is more connected, obviously, than any other generation that we know of. And they're looking at each other. I mean, when we grew up, we were waiting until we had the right degrees. We had the right status to be able to sort of put our thoughts forward on how to solve a problem. These kids are activated. And and I'm really encouraged by that. I mean, I... I used to talk about a youth quake going on around the world and I, and it wasn't cute. It was real. And, and I, and even in the most impoverished places in the world, I mean, I remember meeting inmate, this young man in the slums of Kampala who, you know, at 17 or 18 years old was, had revolutionized the way that people was thinking about education in a refugee camp. I mean, like it is the moment for this generation to take both technology and what they're seeing visually and do something about it. It may be because they don't know, they have a grim reality about what the future might hold and they want to seize the day. It may be because in front of their eyes with a swish of their finger, they see their own peers around the world doing incredible things and think if they can do that, I can do a small, I can do a bullying program, an anti-bullying program in my school. So I think that there is a lot of it. And I think it is not right, frankly, for us to assess the changes based on COVID because there's there is going to be deep reflection on what's happened to this poor generation because of COVID. But universally, I think if you're comparing changes for us, they are, and they're pushing back. I mean, I think about some of the things that we learned in our classes today, if I were Farah at age 15, I would be pushing back much harder at how I learned something and why I learned it. And I think that there are kids who are doing that in the classroom. And to Diana's point about how young women were raised, how we were looking at the world, there was a, a, a very sweet formula about what you needed to do to, to, you know, you do this and you do this, and then suddenly you can do anything. And I, and I, you know, it's the, you know, superwoman kind of mentality when we were in college too, that anything is possible. If you just work hard enough, it's, you can have it all, whatever the heck that means. And I, so I think that there's a sobering, sobering reality for these young kids who are able to access reality stories from people who have walked the walk. And in the work that I've done 
talking with young kids today about their careers, I am very clear about, you know, the roadblocks that exist and the many things that, that all of us had to experience in our own careers to be able to get to another place. So I think, I mean, I, I'm more optimistic than you are, Diana, but, but I think I'm it's so because, glad to hear your perspective because yeah. mine's a little slight. I have a very narrow slice. I don't travel <laughs> no, I but I mean, left the country. It, it's a privilege to be able to get into the minds of, of these young kids through their own experiences. I'm mm-hmm. not sending a rosy picture that everything is perfect, but I'm saying that the optimism definitely exists. And I think that the, I should say one last thing, that there's an infrastructure for young kids to be able to move their ideas forward that didn't it's exist just, when we were mm-hmm. young. So even as motivated as all of us were because of the mm-hmm. way we were raised and the school we went to, even if we wanted to access an innovative idea, where would we go? Where would we have done that? You know, there's no, there was no place to do it. I, I think uh, a lot of what all of you have said, I'm going to tell you why you're all four of you are wrong. No, I'm just, no. What I was going to say was, it, is, I think you're all right because it's, it can be both. Uh, I mean, some of us are talking about the, how the environments are so completely different from mid eighties till now. And then Farah, you're talking more about the the sort of integrity, the fiber, the, the, the being, what lurks inside the, the hearts and minds of these young people. And I was going to try to close it up quickly. Nobody asked me, but with an optimistic note that it, it is a different time. Like my son went to the, the March for Our Lives, the March for, for Gun Control in Washington, and I just couldn't have been prouder. And I just thought, thought when I was you know, 15, 16, I, I probably was too busy playing Atari to think about going, you know, worrying about gun control. But these kids, and so impressive that the kids that spoke that day in Washington. And I just think of the, the that, you know, I have family members in my extended family who have kids that are openly gay at an age when it never would have been considered in the past. My cousin has a, a beautiful son who used to be a beautiful daughter. He, he's a, a trans person, obviously, and out and accepted in his school Amazingly, I have a special needs son and, you know, knock on wood, his experience all through school was, was one of people rooting for him and acceptance. And so, and I, I just think there is, if it's possible, people are nicer, I think, in this generation. And it, that's not a universal thing, I'm, I'm sure, but their eyes are open to things like that there are going to be, you know, kids in the class who have two moms or two dads or whatever, and it's no big deal. I mean, that's among that generation. I think we heard that a lot when the, the gay marriage debate came to a head a few years ago, that the young people, they were like, what's the big deal? So gay people want to get married. I have a friend of mine, she and her wife's daughter came home and was like, God, you guys are so boring. <laughs> and they're like, they're our age. And they're like, are you kidding? Do you know how much we had to fight just to, right. you know, but right. now that's boring. But I also, I, I just, if I could add just very one, very one quick thing is also kids now are, are realizing that the history that has been told has been wrong and to challenge things more and to hear people's voices uh, and, and just also the power of social media that, you know, some kid in the middle of XYZ can post this thing of their professor saying these awful, racist, horrible things and action is being taken with them, that things are not as much in a nutshell or in a corner or under under a bushel. But I just feel like, you know, there. I hope that there's hope. You said it. <laughs> Meredith, should I queue up We Are the World again? 
Or what was your mom's version of the song? No. Well, we thank you for listening to the link. We thank you to our awesome guest, Wendy Millett. Wendy, thank you, thank you. Is, thank is, you. Do you have any kind of social media presence if people want to learn more about what you do on the ranch? TomCatRanch.org. Awesome. That's cat, cat with a K, right? Cat with a K, yep. TomCatRanch.org. Or, or Facebook and Instagram, of course. Awesome. Wasn't she awesome, guys? Yes, awesome. Thank you so much. Thank and and so when, much. when and where do I submit my application to be an apprentice? <laughs> yes, come on out. Uh, Thank and, you. I just, it could be it, part of your Muhammad Ali scholarship. I, I am telling you, I am sold. I love the whole thing. I think it's absolutely fantastic. And we are so lucky to have you here with us today, Wendy. Thank you. Awesome. Yeah, Thanks for yeah. getting to see chance to see you guys. And really, when you're in California, come out for a visit. Yeah. Absolutely, please do. So, good so, view as you can see. Dave, when you don't leave for a second, Dave, are you just turning off the recording? Can, yeah, I'm trying to close the show here. Do you mind? Just to close. Oh. <laughs> it's, it's all right. Thank you for listening to the link. If you like this podcast, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, wherever you find your podcast. Go to pod617.com for more information. Thanks for listening to the link. <laughs>